good to be here this morning. I was, uh, I was excited when Neil asked a few months ago he was going to be taking a little time off and wanted to know if anybody wanted to volunteer and give a message. And I thought, well, you know, I've had a little bit of training with New Transmission, and maybe once in a while it's good for me to shake off the dust and take a bath on Saturday night. I'm just joking with <laughs> Kathy earlier. So anyhow, it's uh, good to be here. It's nice to have a missionary here. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't that challenge you? I mean, I heard that, and, you know, it's just it's really exciting to have a missionary come who's on his way to go out and seeing that uh, I knew that he was going to be here. So I asked the Lord what would be something I could share and uh, preach on this morning, and and uh, I had a thought come to my mind that I thought was really exciting, and that's in the book of Nehemiah. Now, it's such a big book, and there's so many things to cover there, so I'm only going to be able to take a few points just uh, so we can look at this morning, look at the Word of God, and just ask God what He would have for us in our lives that we could challenge ourselves from the Word of God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank You this morning for your word that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, that it is able to work in our hearts to motivate us, to encourage us. And we thank you for the truths that are here that we can learn from and take the examples of and uh, just use them in our daily living. Lord, we thank you for the message this morning. We just thank you for each of those that are here, for uh, Pastor Neil as he's uh, on sabbatical. Just bless him and his family as they're away. And just want to continue to pray for the missionary team as they're at the airport in Florida, even as I speak here, that they're ready to board the planes and go over for their, their short mission trip there in Haiti. Just bless them, go before them, keep them safe as they travel. And uh, use the word in our hearts, we pray this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So I was looking at the book of Nehemiah the last month or so, just thinking of uh, something I could glean from here. And let me give you a little bit of... Just a little bit of background into the book so you kind of have an idea of what the setting is. It's kind of nice to know who he's talking about, who he's talking to, and what's going on in the history of the time of, of Nehemiah. And uh, we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, you don't have to turn there, but the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, right, for correction, for instruction, and reproof that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And we know that God takes the Bible, and even though it's speaking to Nehemiah's talking about what happened in his time, we can take the examples and we can learn from what's, what's happened. And it's fun to look at the children of Israel anyways, because there are people that God loved and chose in the Old Testament, starting with Abraham, said, I was going to bless you, make you a great nation. So from the time of Abraham, God chose the Jewish people, and all through the Old Testament, they were the ones that he took care of and followed and made promises to. But it's kind of neat because if you look at the children of Israel, they're not a whole lot different than us today. I mean, they did things back then. You just, you just wonder how could, you know, the Lord let them go get written down in the Bible. But man, they weren't perfect, were they? The Jewish people loved to go into idolatry. They loved to worship idols. They loved to do things that violated the scriptures. And so many times God would say to them, I'm going to punish you if you guys keep acting like this. And then God would bring his judgments upon them. And this is what happened uh, in the history of Israel here. God told them, uh, it says, and we'll read here in the book of Nehemiah what, what uh, Nehemiah says here. But let's, let's look at the word and uh, take a look at what he says here. But a little bit of the background 
King Cyrus in about 540 B.C., he's the first one that uh, began to help the Jews return back to Jerusalem. And so King Cyrus was one of the first kings that kind of, in his thinking, he was thinking, well, if I can get the Jews back over there to watch Jerusalem, maybe they'll be loyal to me and we can, uh, you know, have somebody to kind of watch that end of, the, of, of our territory with, with the Medes and the Persians. And so Cyrus, he uh, kind of gave in and he, he started to let Zerubbabel and many of those about 70, 80 years before Nehemiah go back and start building the temple. So they, they did go back and they built the temple. They returned back. And if you look at Ezra and Nehemiah, there were approximately 50,000 Jews that went back, around 50,000. It's a pretty good number. There's a little discrepancy in between the two accounts as within a few hundred people, it isn't anything real. Major, there's around 50,000 of them that did get to, to return to Jerusalem. And uh, so they went back, and then we have, a, after the time of uh, King Cyrus, you had King Darius, and he was, he was ahead of the Medes and the Persians, and that was the time of Daniel. We go to Daniel, and we see where, where he was under King Darius. Daniel got thrown into the lion's den, and God miraculously uh, shut the mouths of the lions, and they were, he was saved. Remember that story? Daniel chapter 6. And so then you have King Darius. And then during the, uh, right after King Darius and his empire came a guy named Xerxes. This was around five, uh, 485 to 465 B.C., about 20 years before. We're going to talk about Artaxerxes here in a minute. So Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, was the king that was uh, at the time of Queen Esther. So then we get into the book of Esther, and so Esther is the one that had the guts to go before the king and save her people from getting slaughtered. Do you remember that story? That's a really great story. So we get the background from there. And then we come to about 464 to 424 B.C. It's about a 40-year period, and then we get to Nehemiah. And here we have a, a... a believer, a Jew, Jewish believer, who's eight to nine hundred miles away from home. You have uh, Jerusalem. You got to go all the way over to Iran, to the kind of the southern part of Iran. There was a place there called Susa or Shushan, and this was like a winter resort place. It was a, a big palace that they had there for the king. He would go over there and spend part of his time there. So this was a place that Artaxerxes would go to for a certain amount of time. And so now we get to the book of Nehemiah, and then we see what Nehemiah has to say. It's sort of an, he's kind of talking about him in the first person here, Nehemiah. This is why we know he wrote the book here. It says here that the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, I was in Shushan the citadel that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province there are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So this is the first three verses. And so... As we look at the life of Nehemiah, the first thing he does, as we learn from this Jewish fellow, is the first thing he does is he asks the question. Uh, he cared enough to want to know what was going on in Jerusalem. He, he cared enough to ask what's happening. 
And so Nehemiah, he goes to his brethren who came over to the palace there, and, and it says this is the 20th year, so this is halfway through King Artaxerxes' uh, 40-year reign, right in the middle now, 40 years, 20 years, um, Nehemiah was there in the palace. Now, if we go to verse 11, just at the end of verse 11, it says here, for I was the king's cupbearer. So we know that Nehemiah really had a great job. Can you imagine being right next to the king and having a job like that? Nehemiah was somebody who sat with the king. The queen tells us that the queen sits right next to the king many times during their culture. And Nehemiah's number one job was to make sure he took care of the king. That was a lot of responsibility. I mean, it would be like being the right-hand man for our president today. I mean, it's a very big, important job, and he was the one that made sure the wine was good. He would sip it first to make sure he didn't drop dead, you know, because that was how they killed people back in those days. They would poison you to death. So he would, be, uh, he would be right there with the king taking care of him. So he was a man of confidence. He was a man of, and I'm sure he had a great job. I'm sure that, I don't think he got up in the morning and went out and had to uh, build buildings or anything like that. He, he had a plush job. So he really, he really had it made. But yet, Nehemiah knew, in his mind, he knew that, boy, you know, I'm, I came from Jerusalem. My, my, my fathers come from, uh, I come from a, a family of Jews, and, of, and of my lineage is completely different. So something was getting to Nehemiah, and he just had to know what's, what, what's going on. So the Bible tells us here that Nehemiah, he really cared about what was going on with his people, and this was a burden that he had. So he asks, uh, the, he asks his brother um, Hanani, one of his, says one of his brethren, some of the commentators think it was his real brother, others it was, could have been one of his Jewish brethren, but we don't really know a lot about Nehemiah. It doesn't really tell us whether he was married, whether, you know, what, a lot about his details other than he was born, his father was Hakaliah, that's all we really know. So anyhow, he cared enough to try to find out what's going on with my family, with my lineage. And so he asks, and then they tell him, and let's look at uh, Nehemiah's response in verse 4. So it was, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the first thing with Nehemiah is he cared enough to ask what was going on. He asked what's happening. The second thing with Nehemiah is he cared enough to, to weep and cry about the situation. And so what's, what's interesting, in our, in our society today, it's kind of a macho thing not to just, you know, men don't, tough men don't cry, right? Tough men are kind of, you know, we kind of hold our own. We try not to cry. Now, if you end up going to a funeral or sometimes you just can't help it, we cry, but... I don't know, for me, it seems like sad movies make me cry, so it just depends on, on probably your emotional makeup. But anyways, the thing with Nehemiah is he went to the Lord, and he asked about the situation, and then the next thing we find out here, it really got to him. Emotionally, it says that he wept, and it wasn't just for a few minutes. It wasn't like he just cried, and okay, I'm, I'm better now, let's go, go back to work for the king. It tells us here that from the time that this passage is in verse 4, so we get to chapter 2 in another minute here. About four months goes by. Four months. And so during this time, it's really getting to Nehemiah. It bothers him. It's just something happens to him that allows him to know that God is putting it on his heart to get involved and to do something about the situation. 
No, so we look at the scriptures, we see what Nehemiah has done, and we know that he was moved by this situation. You know, as I, as I think about this, and we think about one of the things I like about Coast Bible Church, my wife and I came 17 years ago, whatever it was, we came to visit, and one of the things we love about this church is it's small, but you know what, the people here care. And right now, I can, I can name probably 20 people that have gone to Haiti and have, have had a real burden and have gone down there and had a part in what's going on down there. It's really cool. I know Monica and Toy are at the airport now and some others. And I know that uh, the Harrisons and the Livingstons and uh, many of the families have all had a part in being involved in missions, haven't we? We just know that God works in our hearts. And uh, another one was Pastor Arch. He was a great example to me because for years he spoke and preached the Word of God here. And then one day the Lord called uh, Arch, and I remember when we went to a GES conference, he was telling me in confidence, you know, the Lord's given me a burden, and that's to go and help, uh, maybe help someday with B-World where I can go and have a part in reaching people in other countries. So what's the result of that now for the last five, seven years? Pastor Arch has gone to Nepal, and he's gone to Myanmar, and, and we hear about his reports, and I know Jack has gone over and helped him many times. And the God has given Arch that burden, hasn't he? He goes down and reach people with, he can train pastors to be able to give the good news of the gospel. We're going to get into the gospel here in a little bit too, what, what is the gospel. So anyways, uh, Nehemiah, he cared enough to ask what's going on, and then he cared enough to weep about it. It really got to him. Now, the next thing we see in verses 5 through 11 is the next thing Nehemiah does here is he cared enough to pray. That's a tough one because it seems like, I don't know if you guys, you know, many, many of you have regular jobs and we're busy all the time and things are always going. It's really hard just to take time and sit down or get away from everybody and just pray, isn't it? It's, it's, it just take, it really takes effort to just take the time to pray. But let's look at verses 5 through 11. This is Nehemiah's prayer here. It says here, and I said, I pray, Lord, God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, and that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants. And confess the sins of the children of Israel that have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet will I gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's talking about Artaxerxes because I, he says, for, for I was the king's cupbearer. So Nehemiah says, he, he prays his prayer. And if we look at this prayer, you know, when I, when I read these 
a prayer like this, it just really floors me. Because when you take a person that really wants to get close to God, guess, guess what the first thing you see when he, when he prays to God? What is it? It's a real humility. It's a real broken heart. It's, it's, not, it's not like he say, it says to the Lord, man, the children of Israel, those are terrible people, Lord. You know what he says? Lord, I'm terrible. I'm part of this. He says, Lord, I've sinned. And so we know Nehemiah was very humble in his, in his dealings with, with the Lord. And so he brings everything to himself. He makes it personal. And, you know, when you think about that, I know my wife and I and Jonathan, we got to do a little bit with the fair ministry this last couple of weeks. And it's, it's cool because the little kids come in and we get to give the gospel. I know uh, uh, Pat Mitchell also went and did the greet. She was a greeter. Did you give the story? Anyhow, we go in at this little booth and then the Gideons are next door giving away Bibles. And then we're standing there trying to bring the kids in so they can hear the gospel. And so we're out there. Last night was kind of slow the first hour, and then in the second hour we had maybe 13 or 15 come through. A lot of them are believers because they've been there before. But the culture is changing. I've noticed in the last uh, 20 or 30 years we've been doing this, parents used to not be so reluctant to let their little kids go in and hear a Bible story. You know, it was kind of cool. But, you know, things are changing. I notice that things are, are really different now than it seems like now you have this Fear of somebody could hurt you. You know, you got this sexual abuse. I mean, you know, can I let my little kid go in this little place where I can't see? So things are kind of changing, and I'm just wondering whether the strategy shouldn't change maybe with CEF on how we should reach uh, the children there. But anyhow, yesterday I got there early, and I was waiting for my wife and my son to come. And they went home and had lunch, and so I'm walking around the fair. And when I'm there, you know what goes through my mind when I'm walking around and by myself, you know, so I'm just walking. I went, and, you know, of course I had to go for the junk food. I love those hot dogs, you know, corn dogs. And you see all this fried food, fried Twinkies. Man, they, don't they look good? You see all this food. I mean, they, they can fry everything. I mean, they got fried pickles, fried avocados. Every year they got to think of something new to fry so they can sell you with that smell. And then when you walk down the main aisle, all this smoke goes right at you. They have these fans with that smoke coming in. And when you get out of the fair, we got home last night. My wife, you know, we said to each other, well, we smell like a couple smoke bombs. <laughs> then we went into the marketplace where they sell stuff, and they got this thing called smoke bomb in there. What was it, smoke scent or something, you know, to try to get rid of the smells. But anyhow, as I walk around the fair, you know what comes to my mind? How many of these people are probably even saved? Or, or how many of these people walking around here know the Lord? It's probably a small percentage. I don't know. You know, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, there are a lot of believers that come through with their family, but, you know, a, a big majority of them may have never heard the gospel. They have no idea where they're going if they were to die. It's kind of scary, isn't it? And then I think to myself, well, why did the Lord choose me? Why was... Why, were, why did God choose Ray to become a believer, to accept Christ as his personal Savior and be given eternal life? It's a free gift, right? Why did God choose me? And it's the grace of God, isn't it? It's the grace of God that just allows us to be one of the, one of the ones that are chosen by God. And it's so exciting. So when you see the need, that's the first thing we do is we see a need, and then whatever that need is, God moves us. And, you know, I know for, for each of us, we all have things in our lives as we're going through and the Lord will burden us about something. Maybe it's uh, working with the young people, or maybe it's doing a short-term mission somewhere. Maybe it's 
even helping with one of the ministries here with the children. We have a lot of children that love to get the gospel message every Sunday morning. Whatever it is, God will give us a burden, and we'll begin to pray about it, and then God can begin to work in our heart. So it's a matter of being open to the Lord. It's a matter of spending time in prayer. And the prayer is something, like I said here, Nehemiah prayed for four months now. He's burdened about his family's situation back over there in, in Jerusalem. Now, the reason why Nehemiah was so bummed out is because when you get the report of what's happening in Jerusalem, the Ammonites and, the, and all the groups and the tribes and the Persians and the Arabs that are around that area, guess what they're doing? They're making fun of the Jewish people back in Jerusalem because the, the, the temple's up. And some of them, there's 50,000 people living there. But guess what? They're getting abused, and people are just making fun of them. And they're, they're a laughingstock. You know, and, and the Ammonites and the Arabs, I mean, they're all saying, hey, how can we take advantage of these Jews now? Let's go take them for a ride. Let's go steal their money or do whatever we can do. And this is what was going on. And so when Nehemiah heard this, it bothered him. He said, boy, we've got to do something. Something has got to happen to help my people or the people of my ancestors and my fathers. And this is what moved Nehemiah was he saw the need, he prayed about it, and things began to work in his life. Now, once we have a burden and God burdens us for whatever, whatever our ministry is for Nehemiah, it was going back and building those walls back up again. Whatever the burden or the mission is that God gives us to do, if God is not behind it, it's not going to happen anyways, right? So Nehemiah prayed and prayed and prayed, and then he said, okay, Lord, you know I want to fix these walls. I've got this burden. You know, I spent day and night crying about it, and man, it's really moving me. Whatever the mission is God has given him, look at chapter 2 now. He was the king's cupbearer working for King Artaxerxes, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan. Now, the month of Nisan is about March and April in that time frame. In verse 2, it says that he was in the months of Chislev. That was around November, December. So we got about four months now that have gone by. And for four months, he's been praying and concerned about his, his brethren over in Jerusalem. And it says that in the, in, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So up to this point, Nehemiah has been kind of trying to keep anything emotional from disturbing the king. And now you've got to remember, when you're the king's top guy and you're the, you're the guy that he trusts in, it's not like America here where at least we have a certain amount of rights. We still have you know, judges and you know, we have trials and things. We've we got a, a great country here. But back in those days... In the Middle Eastern cultures, the Persian kings, if they didn't like something, you know, they could just put you to death. And it happened all the time. They had power. It was no problem. If, if they didn't like something you were doing, just say, away with you. Just take them to the gallows, cut his head off, whatever they got to do. And, the, and that's kind of a scary thing. So a lot of times you lived in fear because you knew that if you made the wrong move, that could be your head. So you're really very careful. So he didn't want to be down when he's with the king. So he goes into King uh, Artaxerxes, and the, and the king says to him, uh, verse 2, Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you're not sick? I mean, you, you look fine to me. You're eating good. You've got all the top foods in the world. You got, you know, We're bringing in the best grains from all over the world, and 
and uh, you got number one chefs here, and everything's going fantastic. You look healthy. You're not, you know, I don't see anything wrong with you. Why are you so sad? And uh, this is nothing but sorrow of heart, and I am dreadfully, and so I became dreadfully afraid. And so Nehemiah says that he knew that he was down. He knew that the king noticed something wrong with him, and it says he was dreadfully afraid. So here we have Nehemiah. He's thinking inside, hey, I guess, man, he found out how upset I am. Now, this could be it for me. So he's, he's scared to death. And then he said to the king, may the king live forever. So he tries to be, he, puts, he becomes as positive as he, he could be. And he says, king, live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? So Nehemiah just tells it like it is. He says, King, it's because I'm really upset about my situation, my ancestors, my family, my history. Back in the uh, place where I come from, it's a mess. They're getting things are run down. And the king said to him, well, well, what do you request? What do you want? And right here in, in the second half of verse 4, it says that, I, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And so here, right in the middle of being scared to death, knowing that the king could take your head off if you did something wrong. Right in the middle of that, he tells the king, man, I'm upset because Jerusalem's a mess and I want to go back and I, I, my, I want to rebuild these walls. He's telling the king the story. And then it says he prayed to the God of heaven. So we know that during this time, he, I'm sure he didn't get on his knees right there like he did like Daniel did. I, didn't, I don't think he stopped and got down and physically prayed and said, Lord, give me strength here. I don't think he did that. He prayed to the God of heaven, right in his mind, right within a split second. And that's a great thing, isn't it? It's great to know that we can pray right in the middle of something going bad for us. It doesn't have to be middle of the night. It doesn't have to be Wednesday night prayer meeting or Bible study, but we do pray in those times. But right when we need it, Nehemiah, he saw the need and he prayed. And so I said to the king in verse 5, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And it says that the king said to me, the queen also sitting right behind him. So here's he's in this setting with the queen next to him and the king. And he says, uh, yes, king, I want to go back to Judah. I want to rebuild the walls that are distressed there. And that's when the day, that's, that's when you find out what's going to happen. So what's interesting is that 20 years earlier, when Artaxerxes became king, guess what he did? He, he actually stopped Jerusalem from being built any further. He was really not a good king to begin with. He was really uh, very against the Jews. And he, had, he was siding with the, with the Persians and the Arabs and those that were around there. They were all telling uh, King Artaxerxes that if these guys build the walls and they make a big fortified city again, they're going to break away from you. And then the Jews will be their own country. And look at all that tax revenue you're going to lose. Does that sound like politics today? Do we do that here in America? I mean, everybody's worried about politics and where we're going to get the money for this or that. So a lot of it had to do with money. And so uh, it seemed that at this time, King Artaxerxes, he had a change of heart. He figured, well, maybe the Jews won't go against me anyway. So he said to, uh, he said to Nehemiah, okay, how long, how long is it going to take you? How much is it going to cost? And what's the deal here? So the Lord gave Nehemiah favor. And it says, uh, it says here that he, he, so it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So he said to the king, whatever amount of months it's going to take to, 
to go there and fix these walls up, we'll go. And we know that the time frame from the time he left with all the things that Nehemiah uh, got from the king there, it took around two to three months to get there. And uh, he was ready to go at that point. So now here's the, here's the fourth thing. The first thing we've got in chapter 1, Nehemiah cared enough to ask about the situation. He cared. He wanted to know what's going on with my family, with my ancestors, with our, with our Jewish people. The second thing we find out in verse 4 is that Nehemiah cared enough to, to weep and to be moved and to, to have something happen to him in his heart where he knew God was calling him to do something. The third thing is that in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, Nehemiah cared enough to pray. Sincerely, he prayed. It says that he prayed day and night, and he, it burdened him to see what God would have him to do. It wasn't just like an emotional thing where we hear somebody give something. We say, okay, I'll do it. You know, it isn't an emotional thing. It's something that he prayed about for months. And then, and then came the fourth thing in chapter 2, Nehemiah cared enough to volunteer and go. He said, Lord, I'll go. I'll do it. That's pretty cool. I mean, here's a guy that hadn't, I don't even know if he'd ever been to Jerusalem. But yet he had a burden to do a job that God had called him to do. So the fourth thing we, hear, we have here is Nehemiah being convinced that he needed to volunteer. He was the guy that was going to be the man for the job. He knew it. He said, I, you know, I'm, I, he, was, he had the leadership abilities. He knew that God was given him the task. And so let's go on here. Uh, furthermore, he said in verse 7, Furthermore, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the region beyond the, beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. So Nehemiah knew that if he takes off by himself and he was to go toward Jerusalem and just going there, he knew that he was in trouble, right? Because, man, all these... Enemies around there, they just loved to blast him. They just loved to see what they could do to stop him. So he prayed about it, and he knew, well, if the Lord's in this, I'm going to ask for a few things. Let's see what we can see what the Lord will, Lord's going to give us to help me out. So he says, he says to the king, give me, uh, uh, give me letters to the governors along the way. So as I go from one city to the next, we can show them our credentials, that I'm here from, from you, King Artaxerxes. I don't know about... Uh, uh, Andy, he's going back to Brazil, but when my wife and I were in Venezuela, South America, this was, what, oodles back in the early 80s when we were there, you could not go 10 miles down the freeway in Venezuela with, on a bus, even with the bus and our passports, without the military stopping you. They would stop, we'd pull up, these guys with the soldiers, kind of scary, the guys with the soldiers would come on the bus and give you the evil eye, and then the, just for the fun of it, they'd like to open up your suitcase, see what kind of pills or drugs you might have. A lot of times for us, they're vitamins. You know, we got a bunch of vitamins. So, uh, But anyhow, the amount of pressure it is in a lot of these countries to go anywhere, do anything, is incredible. They really put the controls on you. And just a side note, even today in our, in our culture, don't you see more of that happening in the background? Jonathan was sharing with me uh, some of the things 20, 30 years ago when Daryl, when uh, Officer Gates started the first SWAT team in Los Angeles. That was like 35 years ago. We now have 10,000 SWAT teams in America ready to go. What, what's happening is we're going to become more and more of a military-type state. This is things that are slowly happening. It's supposed to be the military takes care of us and defends us. Now it's going to be the police force. You know, It's kind of scary when you think about that. But in these, in these other countries, you can't go very far. They stop you, and they go through your stuff. 
That's kind of scary. I'm sure it probably happens to Andy all the time. So Nehemiah said, I've got to have some letters. I've got to have some credentials. So he got everything he needed to be able to get through there. So it says here he got his letters. And then he said, uh, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he, may give, that he must give me temper to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Isn't that cool? So he prayed about it. He asked the Lord, Lord, I'll go. But if I'm going to go, help me out, Lord. I need things to happen. I need you to go with me. I need you to open the doors for me. Because we can't do anything by ourselves, can we? We really can't. Even as a church here, we think sometimes maybe I can do this or that. We can't do anything. But it takes a team. It takes all of us together with the same burden and the same vision. And, and this is what Nehemiah, he, this is what he did. And then he, then he says, and Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, verse 9, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And so he was all prepared. It didn't take long on this two- to three-month journey. It didn't take him long. He probably had, I don't know how many camels or whatever he had with him. He had a big bunch of stuff. And as he went along the way, they stopped and they loaded up some lumber, they loaded up some whatever they need to build these gates and, and walls. And so as he's going along, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So it didn't take long before Nehemiah was already feeling the pressure of, of the enemy. And it doesn't take us long as, a, I mean, we're looking at Nehemiah's story, right? We're learning from his example. Once we begin to step out and want to do something for the Lord, it doesn't take long for problems, does it? It doesn't take long for things to come up that discourage us to, and you know, there's another many, many sermons in this book that we could go on, but as you go into the next chapters, the enemy did everything they could to discourage Nehemiah. All kinds of different tactics and fear and threatenings, I'm going to kill you, this and that, and it didn't faze him. Nehemiah knew that the Lord sent me, he's in control, and he'll get me through whatever task I have to do. And so when they heard it, they were greatly dis disturbed that somebody cared about the Jewish people, and so Nehemiah, he was volunteering for the job. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and so it tells us that what he does when he gets there Instead of just going in and making a big scene, he takes his time. He pulls into town. He sets up camp. And then he takes a couple people with him, and they take a few horses, and they go up into the city and just kind of look. And he wants to see for himself. So verses 11 through, let's go, let's go on here. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do in Jeru at Jerusalem. There was, nor was there any animal with me except the one that I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and to the refuse gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. And I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal to pass under me. So when he got there, he couldn't even get around. The rubble was so bad that he couldn't even get the horses or to maneuver around to get through. And he said, I guess this is just like they told me. It's pretty bad. And so I went, up, I went up in the night, verse 15, in the valley, and I viewed the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. 
And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. And I told not yet, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who, uh, who did the work. So at this point, he just was getting, he was getting ready. And he knew that he was going to go in. And uh, we can see the amazing leadership that Nehemiah has here. Now in verse 17, then he gets to work. And then he says, okay, now we're ready to do something here. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we're in? How Jerusalem lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them that the, good, that the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that, had, that he had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise up and build, and they set their hands to do this good work. So this was, this was the beginning of Nehemiah's adventure. He gets there, he volunteers, he goes, spends many months getting ready for it, prays about it, and now he talks to the people, and they're ready. God and his plan, he, God has it timed out from eternity past that he was going to help rebuild these walls, and uh, Nehemiah was just part of his plan. Isn't that cool how God provides? God took care of him. And so the same, we look at applications for us today. I mean, when I saw uh, Andy's film here, it's so cool that God has put it on his heart to go to Brazil. And he's got their credentials already. He's got some things going for him. He's got, he's got everything he needs. He can freely go into the country and begin to teach people the, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's great news, isn't it? There's a reason why we're, uh, God calls us and sends us. And so Andy, I'm sure, has, has had the burden felt. He's asked about it. I'm sure he's wept over it. He's prayed many, many years. He's been pre- preparing himself for the last, what, 17 years, he says, going through seminary. And now finally he tells his wife and his kids, we're going now. So it's, it's really exciting. I'm really excited for the Royers going to uh, Brazil. And now he's ready to go. That is really cool. So now when we look at the life of Nehemiah, we know that this had to do with something that happened 444 years before Christ came. It's a long time ago, wasn't it? And we know that he was a man that God had called and sent him to do a job. It's all in the scriptures. It's all there. So as we look at this, we can just ask ourselves, Lord, how does this uh, apply to me? And... The same thing is true for us. The first thing we can do is, Lord, we can ask and say, Lord, what, what is there I can do? What can I do? And this is really a great church already. I mean, we've got a lot of people doing a lot of things in this church. And for being such a small church, it seems like everybody's involved in something. So I don't, as I think about this, I'm just trying to think, how can we challenge us even more? We're already a church that's challenged. But that would be the first thing we ask is, Lord, what can I do? And, you know, we don't have to just jump into it. But, Lord, what can I do next? What, what's there for me? The second thing is, is the Lord can move us. He can cause us to see something where it's going to really burden our hearts, no matter what it is. I mean, I have a burden for these little kids at the fair. I mean, maybe next year we could do a puppet show or do something different because it's not working bringing them into the, you know, a few people get, a few of them get saved, but not nearly like it used to be. So, Lord, what kind of things can you give us and provide for us to do? And then the next thing is we pray about it. Lord, Move me. What can I do? Lord, I'm a sinner. And, it, you know, as I studied this last couple of weeks about the prayer of Nehemiah, man, there's dozens of examples in the Bible. We have Daniel in chapter 9. He does the same thing. He says, Lord, we're a wicked people. We're sinners. 
you know, Daniel, you find no sin found on Daniel's life in the scriptures. You find him, him doing nothing wrong ever as far as being blameless. But yet he says, Lord, we're a wicked people and, and uh, we're, we need you to humble us and, and make things happen. And the same with Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Lord, woe is unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He goes, he saw the Lord in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6 and he sees the Lord. And what's the first thing, first thing he does? He's just... He's just taken by how powerful God is and how wicked we are. So the closer we get to God, the more we're going to find out, boy, we really need the Lord, don't we? We need him to work in our lives daily. And then the third thing we do is we pray. And then the fourth thing, fourth thing we can do is volunteer. That's a hard one. That's a hard one because, you know, sometimes we're too busy. To Lord, I don't have time. I don't have time to do this. Lord, I can't be a missionary. Lord, I can't help in Sunday school. Lord, I can't work at the fair. Lord, I'm, I'm a busy man. But we need to say, Lord, what can I do? Whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever the task is. Maybe it's, you know, when you think about this area here, we have lots of big churches here, but I think we're one of the few that's just dedicated to teaching the grace of God. I wish I had time for I had another four sermons ready to go here. I was going to go to sermon number two, but I don't think I better. Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from God, revealed against all unrighteousness. Our brother Andy was talking about here. Every person born knows that there's a God. And every person in the world is born and grows up, and when they first see God in the, in the nature and everything, they reject God. And therefore, when they stand before God at the great white throne judgment, no one's going to be able to say, Lord, I didn't know you were there. Why should I be sent to hell? Why should I go to the lake of fire? Because God's going to say, you're without excuse. You knew right from the beginning. I showed you the invisible things, but you rejected me. You, you chose to worship the creature rather than the, than the creator. You, you chose to go after your own lusts. And I don't want to get into the Romans chapter 1. I wanted to talk about it today. But, you know, we, we talk about uh, where the Lord says here, men burned against men and women, against, women with women doing things that are unseemly, it tells us in Romans chapter 1. Man, it's getting to the point now where you can't even say, I believe what the Bible says a man is a husband and wife and everything else is wrong. You can't even do that today. Do you know, I get, I am afraid to go on Facebook, the new social media. It scares me to go on there and you see all these comments. I see Scotty and different ones talking with this guy who's homosexual. And uh, I'm afraid to go on there and say, hey, thus saith the Lord. It's a sin. It's a sin to believe in that stuff. God says man is... Given us a woman because he created us that way. But you know what? It's getting to the point we can't do that anymore. Not for long. You know what will happen to us? We could be thrown in jail. Because you're, you're discriminating. So I don't know. I'm glad I'm already 60 going to my last 20 years. I feel sorry for the kids that are going to have to go forward. It's, it's not going to be easy because I, I would be in jail rather quickly. So... <laughs> So to speak the truth is not going to be easy to do as we go forward. And I'm really glad Andy came and shared today. We're going to pray for him. I'm excited about him and his family. And Jonathan graduated with him. I was at his graduation when he graduated, uh, was it, 17 years ago. I was there. And just to see God moving, it's exciting. I'm really excited. Everybody has a part. What's your part? What's my part? I'm afraid to ask. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what God will do? So uh, I hope this has been encouragement to you. It is to me just to look at the scriptures, learn from them. This is a great church, a great fellowship, and um, I, I just love being here. It's a lot of fun. 
Got some great leaders. All the elders are fantastic. And we got our problems. You know, nobody's perfect. No church is perfect because if you find the church, perfect church, don't go there because then you ruin it, you know. So, so uh, you know, everybody says, hey, I want a church that does this. I want a church that is more this way. I want better music, you know. Just walk with the Lord and he'll take care of the situations and something we don't have to worry about. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the book of Nehemiah. We thank you, Lord, that all scripture is given for you by inspiration from from your hand, Lord, that gives us instruction, correction, uh, reproof, and things to work in our hearts, Lord, that can make us better Christians to follow and serve you. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the truth of Nehemiah, that he was he cared enough to ask, Lord, to to know what's to what he could do, what's going on with the, the world around him. Lord, he cared enough to cry about it and weep about it and move him and have a burden for, for the need of Jerusalem and rebuilding those walls. And Lord, we just thank you that he cared enough to pray about it and spend time in prayer and really look into you for what he should do. And Lord, most of all, just thank you that he cared enough to, to raise his hand and volunteer and say, Lord, I'll do it. I'll be the leader. I'll, I'll go, I'll go over there and, and, and be the man of God you want me to be that we can bring this uh, reproach against our people and just show the world and nations around us that we can rebuild these walls and, and give a name that's honoring to you. Thank you, Lord, for the lessons we've learned this morning. Bless our day today. Use it for your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.